want to start with a question. It's a simple question. The question is this, what brings you joy? What is it that brings you joy? What is it that maybe events or things that you have or things that you like to share or hobbies, whatever, what is it that brings joy to you? Now, maybe you can think of a lot of things. Maybe some of us can think of only maybe a few things. Just a couple of days ago, I talked to a friend of mine who got a brand new Jaguar. Not the living one, you know, I mean the car. And I thought, wouldn't that be nice? I could see myself, second gear, third gear, breaking down because we're coming to a curve. And, and I just thought, it ain't never going to happen, you know? You said that about your Lexus. That's true. <laughs> Why did you have to say that? There goes the message. I mean, <laughs> no, I, you know, honestly, think about this. What is it that brings you joy? For some people, they love gardening. For some, it's truly working on the car. Some, it's just being with your children, your grandchildren. There's lots of things. I saw an example of this, of what, what are the things that we really were drawn to by a guy that some of you may know if you're into finance. His name's David Geffen. And he's the one who runs a huge hedge fund out in New York. And uh, he's very, very well off. And it was interesting, they were doing an article about him. And they said, what is the thing that he really likes besides doing this hedge deal fund? And he said, he loves art. And he loves to collect art. And what I found interesting, they said that David Geffen, personally, his artwork that he has is valued at $1.1 billion. Not $1.1 million, $1.1 billion of artwork. And he loves it. He brings people in, friends, shows them, maybe shows off a little bit. I don't know. But lets people know he has got money. And he, as far as they know, outside of a maybe like, you know, uh, in some museum or something, he has the largest in America, the largest thing there that there is in terms of art. And you think, okay, well, I guess he's got the money and he can do it, but is there anything else that would give you joy? We don't know. I don't know what it is. But what we want to do this morning, we're going to start a little five-week series that I'm calling A Taste of the Psalms. Now, call it A Taste of the Psalms because if we took the time to go through every single psalm, it would take a long time. There's 150 of them. But what I want to do is I want to be able to look at some particular specific ones that will give us a taste, an idea of what's happening and what's going on, of what's going on in the book of Psalms. And again, as you know, the book of Psalms in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is one of the most revered and read book in the Old Testament. And what, what a lot of people are not aware is that just in the Old Testament, we have the five books of the law. Uh, you know, we talk about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There are five books in the book of Psalms. And if I can get this to work, we'll see if this happens, that what we have in the book, and what, what we talk about here in the Psalms, we talk about the five books of the Psalms. And it's interesting that we talk about that because we don't normally think of it in that way. And what's interesting here is when you talk about the book of Psalms, you know, we know these five. We call it the words, we call it the Pentateuch, that is the five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But there's also five books that go with the Psalms. In fact, those are the first one. They broke into groups. The first one, the first book, is Psalms chapter 1 to chapter 41. And there's a lot of beautiful Psalms, a lot of Davidic Psalms. It'll say from David or to David in that section. 
And it ends, almost every time when they do this, there's like a little ending at the end saying, this little section is done. And so they add that phrase in, in verse 13. May the Lord, the God of Israel, be praised from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So if you think you grew up in a Baptist church or you did a lot of amening, you did it right because it comes right out of the book of Psalms. So the first book, which we might you know, characterize like with Genesis, is a book that's written mostly by David. And there's lots of things that he does in terms of prayer. The second one that we have here comes in chapters 42 to 72. And this is one of the largest group of them, particularly with Davidic Psalms and a lot of Psalms that are written in that section. And it's got a longer kind of little tag at the end. May his glorious name be praised forever and the whole earl is filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, son of Jesse, are concluded. The only problem is the very next chapter, you've got a book of another one from David, which is kind of telling us that these probably came in groups over time, maybe as much as a thousand years. And so we have the second group. There's a third one that comes with that, chapter 73 to 89. And we hear of other people like Asaph and people like that, other people who are writing now the Psalms as well. And it ends with a little short one. May the Lord be praised forever. Amen and amen. The last one that comes in chapter, the, that's the fourth one, is this long one of Psalm 106 to 109. May the Lord, the God of Israel, be praised from everlasting to everything. Let all the people say amen, hallelujah. So not only we got amen, now we got the hallelujahs going with it too. Okay? And then the last one, we put these together, what we've got is Psalms 107 to 150. And Psalm 107, 150, the last one, is kind of like, I'm going to put it this way, it's sort of like a symphony of praise. And it's just a beautiful way to end the book of Psalms. And so it starts way this way. Hallelujah. Praise God in the sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his powerful acts. Praise him for his abundant greatness. Praise him with the trumpet blast. Praise him with a harp and lyre. Praise him with the tambourine and dance. Praise him with flute and strings. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And that's the end of 150 Psalms. Now here's the question. Why do they do it that way? For example, we understand that we call the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It seems like they intentionally divided this up into five pieces as well. And the question that's asked that we probably don't know for sure until we get to heaven is, why? Why, to go, why do that? Why copy what you see happening with the law? The Torah, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, under that we part we understand that. But why would they put the Psalms in that same thing of a five grouping? And it may be this, that when it comes to the Pentateuch, the Torah, the law, Genesis, Exodus, through Deuteronomy, that's very clear. Do this, don't do that. If you do this, here's what happens. But it may be when they come to the Psalms, they look at it this way, that this is not a book of telling us what to do and not to do, but it's absolutely critical that we take the time to stop and look to weigh how God has worked in the lives of people, not just in a couple years or in a couple decades, but over a thousand years. And that's one of the great gifts of the Psalms, is we're not just talking about this or that. We're listening to people who are talking to God and to see how God responds 
and how God works with his people. And that's one of the reasons why the book of Psalms is so important for not just people in the Jewish faith, but now today for Christians as well, because it gives us the privilege to the talk to the Lord. So what we want to do this morning is what I want to do really for each of these five Sundays is we're taking five groupings. And there's different kinds of Psalms, of course. The one we're going to be looking at is declared as like a hymn. And what we're going to do is take one Psalm out of those each five. And to do that, I want you to turn with me, if you would, to Psalms chapter 33. Psalms chapter 33 is the one that we're going to be looking at. In Psalms chapter 33, it falls into three easy pieces. Okay? It starts with an invocation, basically saying, come praise the Lord, and da 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 and invites us to come and to be part of it. Then there's a long section that deals with the why question. Why is it that we should come and praise God? And then after that, there's a little conclusion that comes with it. So it's that middle part that's in yellow that is the significant part What's going to go with that why question. So what I want to do is pick up here in verse 33. In fact, it would be good if I opened my Bible on that, so let me do that real quick. Psalm chapter 33, what we see is when we come here and we have this invocation, it talks about the fact of what the invocation is here. What is God asking us to do? And we see that particularly in the first three verses, Psalm 33, verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. Now, stop there for a moment with me. If you have a different translation, it might say, sing to the Lord, may exalt in the Lord. It's interesting, the verb that's being used here in Hebrew is ranu. And that means similarly, it can mean lots of things. It can mean rejoice, it can mean exalt, it can shout. It has that idea of exuberant, giving love out to God in terms of prayer and prayer. And so it says, rejoice in the Lord, you righteous one. Praise from the upright is beautiful. That is when God sees his people walking in fellowship with him, that it brings joy to him to see us living the way that God would want us to do. And so he says, praise the Lord with the lyre. Make music with him of a ten-string harp. The Bible only tells us here only about two types of instruments. Electric guitar is not one of them, by the way, but I'm sure if they had the bigger list, it would have been. Okay, But we know from other cultures around that they had many, many different things. We know from later parts in the books of the Bible there were other things. But what's interesting is verse 3 where it says, Rejoice in the Lord, sing a new song to him. Play skillfully on the strings with a joyful shout. It sounds like their worship was pretty, pretty loud. I mean, there was singing and there was shouting. And by the way, this singing is really important. We, we don't really know. The question is, it says, verse 3, it said, Sing a new song. Does that mean somebody needs to write a new song or a new version of a song? We're not sure. But the point is, we are here to worship God. And it is important to see how important, and particularly for Jewish people and now for Christians as well, is the importance of singing. And I know some people said, oh, there's too many songs or there's not enough songs. Well, one thing's very clear. The book of Psalms is all about singing. And it thinks that that's one of the great gifts. Martin Luther, for example, when they were working with the Reformation of the church, one of the most important things was working with the hymnal. He felt that was absolutely critical that God's people would learn theology and understanding of God through what they sang. That's why the words do matter. 
That's why we try to be careful what we do sing and what we don't sing. Luther thought that many times many people learned more theology in their singing than they did in their listening to the preacher. Now, I don't like the idea of that, but I imagine that that happens. And so singing is important. By the way, a lot of times we assume that all cultures have singing as part of their worship. That's not true. The second largest group in, the, in, in their world does not have singing for the most part. There's a few exceptions. That's Islam. Islam, does, for the most part, does not have singing. They have chanting at times of sections of the Quran, but not singing. But it's very important that we recognize that that is part of what God does. It is a way of us of showing that we know that you're God and we're not, that we, who, what we have is totally from you, and we're reaching out to you in song. And so it is important. It says in verse 1, verse 3, sing a new song to him, play skillfully on the strings, and then he talks about with a joyful shout. So the first thing we have is we have verses 1 to 3. The next section, which is already up there, is this next section 4 through 9. And what it's really talked about, we call it, we talk about the word of the Lord. So what we're having here, it's like here's the beginning. Here's the part that we're talking about. And it says, now, why should we go around spending so much time singing and shouting and exalting? And so what he's going to do now, the psalmist in chapter 33, is going to say, here's why. Here's what you need to do. Let me read here, if you would, verses 4 to, four to 5. It says in verse 4, why should we do this? For the word of the Lord is right, and all his, word is trust, all his work is trustworthy. Now, what's interesting, we don't come, apart, we come, we don't come to this word, word, until relatively late in the book of Genesis. But where it is in Genesis 15 is very important because God is giving incredible promises to Abraham. He's saying, you know, I know you're old, and I know you're postmenopausal, and I know you never think you're going to have a child, but you know what? You are. And here is the word of the Lord promising you, will you trust me? And in that, that word is a powerful word. When, he, when, the, when the angel comes back and says, no, I know you laugh, but I want you to tell, I know you're old, you are going to have a baby. I know you laughed about it, but it is going to happen because you can trust the word of God. And so the word of God becomes an essential part of our understanding of the Old Testament and New Testament. We come to him in praise because we know that he's a God who you can count upon his word. There's a great verse that many of you are familiar with. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, for every one of God's promises is yes in him. That is, every promise that Christ has ever made is yes. You don't have to worry about, gee, I wonder if Jesus is going to keep his promise. Well, there's a lot of things you don't know are going to happen, but one thing you can count upon is that God is going to take care of us. And so what we see here when we talk about the fact, okay, the explanation, it's the word of the Lord. But then he goes on, if you notice, look if you would, picking up here in verse, um, excuse me, verse 5. He's talking about where, verse 4. For the word of the Lord is right, all his work is trustworthy. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the Lord's unfailing love. And then what he does in these next few verses, in particularly, he's going to, verses 6 to 9, he's going to give us another example of what God is like and what he's done. He says, one, you can trust upon his word. And he says in verse 6, the heavens were made by the word of the Lord and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. 
about a week and a half ago, uh, we were up in Colorado suffering for Jesus, and um, we were getting ready to go to bed, and some of the other kids were already getting in bed, and, and Kathy and I and David were standing outside, and we're at, it's very high, it's almost 11,000 feet, and there's no lights. So we have flashlights, but when you turn those flashlights off, you can't believe how dark it is. I mean, I can hear you over here, but I can't see you. I mean, it's like almost a darkness you can feel. It's so dark. And we were standing out there doing this, freezing, waiting for the girls. But anyways, we were standing out there, and, and, and David said, look at this. And we looked up, and here's these thousands of stars. And here in this passage, what does it talk about here? It talks about it. It says this, the heavens were made by the word of the Lord and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. It talks about the stars, but he knows the stars by name. Not like M47 at the Berkeley, but he's got his own names for them. And it's beautiful to think about the fact, what is this God that we're worshiping? Well, he is a God that's worthy of our worship. He is our creator. He's our sustainer. And so here in these verses, they make it very important, the importance of what they're doing here when it talks about this. And so, so first of all, it said the word of the Lord in verses 4 to 9. Verse 8, let the whole earth tremble before the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And then this famous phrase, for he spoke, and it came into being. He commanded, and it came into existence. It's very interesting. He's taking us back to Genesis. In many ways, he's making us look forward to what's going to happen with Christ. He talks about in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The whole idea of the fact that now God's word comes to us two ways. Incarnationally, in Christ, he is the living word. Inscripturated is the word that God gave us through his scriptures. And so he says, let the whole earth, verse 8, let the, verse 7, let the gathers the waters of the seas into heap. He puts the depths into storehouses. Let the whole earth tremble before the Lord. Let all the inhabitants stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came into being. He commanded, and it came into existence. And then in verse 10, he takes another little difference, a little change with it. He talks about not just the word of the Lord, but now he's going to talk about the plan of the Lord. And so that's verse 10. The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the people. Yesterday, I was reading uh, my scripture reading. I'm in Exodus. I can tell you how far behind I am. We're new, of course, we're not doing the New Testament. But anyways, I was reading in Exodus, and the passage that it was talking about, it talked about the fact that they were going to have to now, you know, they leaving Egypt. They were now on their own. They were, well, in one sense, they were not on their own, but they were following with Moses. But the whole thing was they were surrounded by all other different nations. We call them the Ites people, Gergeshites, you know, Canaanites, all those type of people were all around warfare, much more powerful than they were. But his point is he's saying, you know what? You see all these nations around you? He tells, tells them in the passage, I am going to put my terror upon them. I'm not asking you to go into big battle. I want you to know what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to put literally the fear of the Lord in them where they're not going to attack you. And this is one of the ways that God's going to show his provision for you. Yes, any one of those nations could take you out like that, but they're not going to because I've put my terror upon them and they're going to leave you alone as you make your journey and you follow the Lord. 
And so we have this passage where he talks about this. It says in verse 10, the Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. By the way, we have another good example of this in Psalm chapter 2, where it talks about the nations rise up against them, and we're going to do this. And so the Lord laughs at them. Like, really? You really think you're going to overthrow me? I don't think so. Examples how God does that. Verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. God is not there going, thinking, oh, what do I do today? I'm, I'm a little confused. I've had a bad day. I mean, God knows what he's doing. He's God. He's holy. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He knows exactly what his plans are doing. Verse 12, happy is the nation whose God is in the Lord, the people he has chosen to be his own possession. He's saying, what a privilege to be the children of God. And, of course, that same terminology, those same words we find now in the New Testament, where Paul talks about the fact you are a chosen people. You are the people of God. He's not saying that there isn't a future for Israel. He's not saying that at all. He talks about the fact that there isn't that. But he is saying God has his people, and he has chosen his people. So what we have in this passage here takes us to verse 12. The next section, it talks about the word of the Lord, the plan of the Lord, and here it talks in verse 13 where it deals with the eye of the Lord. Look at verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. I want you to think about that verse for a moment. The Lord looks down from heaven. He observes some people once in a while. That's not what he said. He observes everyone. Now, most of us in our head would say, oh, yeah, I believe that, I believe that. But I mean, understanding-wise and living-wise, do you believe that God is watching you all the time? That's kind of a scary thought if you think about it. Are, are, if the Lord is looking at you all the time, are there things that he's looking at going, I wish she wasn't doing that, or I wish he hadn't said that? If we really believe that God is watching at all times, maybe we wouldn't be so sharp and when we're dealing with our spouse. Maybe we would live a different kind of way. And so he says, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. In verse 15, he talks about the fact that he says here, he says, he, that is God alone, crafts their hearts. He considers all their works. In other words, God is not an outsider going, that's good, that's good, that's not too good, that's bad. I mean, God is involved in all of our life, our formation from the womb, from a formation to the time we die. God is at work in us and around us and among us. And so what we see in this last section of the thing is, goes right here talks about the might of the Lord in verses 16 to 19. Let me read verse 16. A king is not saved by a large army. A warrior will not be delivered by great strength. Now stop there for a second. In the ancient world, that's exactly the thing you wanted if you're going to a battle. I mean, horses were very valued in that time. And having a horse is great. Having a horse is great. Having a chariot's even better. So to have a chariot and a horse, I mean, that's like what our M1 tanks are like or today. I mean, those are the big boys, you know? And that's what these were. 
But he says in verse, when he talks about this uh, passage again, when he deals with it in verse 16, he said, a king is not saved by a large army. Everything around us would make you think, well, yeah, it could, right? No. A warrior will not be delivered by great strength. Well, sometimes they do. Yeah, but not in this case. Verse 18. Now the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, those who depend on his, on his faithful love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive from famine. Once again, it's saying, where do you really think your provision comes by? Well, I get it from my job. I've got a good job. Well, jobs can end. Well, I got it from the trust I got from my folks. Well, that can end. Could there be another great recession? Yes, there could be. It's saying ultimately, ultimately, our faith is all we have when it comes to looking at the future, saying, Lord, I'm just trusting in you. All that I have, all that I need is significant is from you. And so we have these beautiful verses as you go on in verses 20 and 22 where they kind of wrap it up. This beautiful section, it says, we wait for the Lord. He is our help and shield. He just said, remember, the shield's not going to help you. The horse is not going to help you. The chariot's not going to help you. We wait for the Lord. He's our help and shield. For our hearts rejoice in him. Now notice this. At the beginning of the psalm, it starts out with the very first word, both in Hebrew and English, is rejoice. It ends in verse 20 with, our, for our hearts rejoice. Rejoice in him. From beginning to end, our life ought to be a rejoicing in the goodness and the glory of God. He said, we, for our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in his holy name. And then there's the little prayer. May your faithful love rest on us, Lord, for we put our hope in you. What a beautiful psalm. What a great question it's asking us, really, where do you put your hope in? Is it in what we have, in what we think we have, in ourselves? There's a beautiful song that we sang. I know I sang a lot as a kid. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. David Geffen has an art collection that they believe is worth $1.1 billion. The reality is he can't take him with him. And one day, everything that we think is solid in this world that's lasting is all going to be gone in the new heavens and the new earth but will be with the Lord forever in a place of righteousness. We'll experience the love that we've never experienced in our life before. But for now, he says, we wait. We wait, and as we wait, we worship, giving him the praise, the honor that is his. So here's the question when we asked in the beginning of the message, what is it that really makes you happy? What really make, gets you that is important, values to you? Is it something that won't last? Or is the one thing that's most important to you is a relationship with your Lord and Savior? That will never end. The rest of it 
will all be gone. Our Father, we thank you for this psalm, a beautiful psalm. We thank you that it reminds us again of just how great you are. That at the beginning of the psalm and the end of the psalm, you call us to rejoice. For we are a redeemed people. We're people who have a God who is faithful to his promises. That we are ones who have a God who speaks and galaxies come into existence. And Lord, if you can do that, there's nothing that you cannot do for us in our need. And so we pray that you would help us to understand that that which will bring most joy, that which will bring us most, that which can last, is a relationship with you. Nothing else matters more than having you and knowing you as our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, and King. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.